Well, we did it. We made it to 2015. They tried to keep me down, but they can't keep me down. I'm back. And this is it, baby. Kicking off hopefully a full year of the Broken Light Show. Those first eight episodes were just testing the waters to see what would happen. But I'm in, baby. I'm all in. And this is Dave Mantell hosting the Broken Light Show, first episode, 2015. How you guys doing? You miss me? Oh, man, I had the craziest couple weeks. If you guys only knew, maybe some of you know. Some of you were there. Oh, man, I had... So we've been gone for three weeks. I had planned to only be gone for two weeks, but as I was getting what is uh, going to be this episode ready for you guys right before Christmas everything just fell apart my interface that I used to record the audio for this show died and so I took a couple days troubleshooting thinking well it so it died I, I was getting the episode ready and it died on the Tuesday before the Wednesday release or the supposed to be release of the episode so I spent a couple days troubleshooting and trying to fix it, um, thinking, okay, maybe I can get it out by the weekend. At least it, you know, at least I can do that. And then uh, through my troubleshooting, my computer died, and so then I had no computer and no interface and no show. So luckily, that's been taken care of. The computer got fixed. The interface did not get fixed. I had to get a new one, uh, which was a bummer. But you know what? It's all right, because we're here now. All of that's behind us. We can get on with the show. We've got a really great one for you today. Jamin Warren is on the show. He is the founder of Kill Screen Media and a host of Game Show, PBS Game Show on YouTube. Really great. We talk um, primarily about video games, and uh, so that might turn you off to know that that's coming, but I promise that it's worth it because the conversation that we had is applicable across the board to all kinds of art, and uh, I just think it's really fascinating. The call quality is not the best, so I apologize for that in advance, but the content is killer, so stay tuned for that. In the meantime, you guys know what January means, and that's all kinds of lists about the best things that happened in uh, the year previous, so in this case, 2014. I am not going to bore you with a top anything list, um, but I will take this time to uh, talk about our, our springboard will be one of my favorite movies of the past year. Just came out recently, uh, and it is called Birdman. You will probably see... Birdman at the Oscars. I think it'll win Oscar. I think it'll win Oscar, guys. Uh, that's my prediction. Um, no, I don't know if that'll happen. It, we'll, we'll see. But regardless, I think it's a really great movie. It stars Michael Keaton as a, get this, Michael Keaton as an actor trying to uh, revive his career after playing an uh, original superhero movie, uh, his character being Birdman. And uh, then his career kind of washed up, and he uh, is now trying to get back on track. It's really meta. 
Michael Keaton, of course, being the first Batman. Uh, but regardless of, of the, the meta-ness of the movie, it's so on point with um, the current state of entertainment, the industry. It's just It's just so spot on. Um, if you haven't seen it yet, please go do that. Uh, it's just, I think it's really important. Um, and, uh, this episode, you know, this jumping off point might mean a little bit more to you if you have a frame of reference, but anyway, so after the movie came out, actually the week that I was going to, uh, record this episode initially, there is an article on grantland.com about the movie, uh, and about the film industry. And I just want to read uh, a little bit. It's it's a really long article. It's really awesome. You should go check it out. Grantland.com um, article on Birdman. And here it goes. Talking about Birdman. It's a good movie, but the type of good movie it is has nothing to do with what the movie industry is about. What the movie industry is about in 2014 is creating a sense of anticipation in its target audience that is so heightened, so nurtured, and so constant that moviegoers are effectively distracted from how infrequently their expectations are actually satisfied. Movies are no longer about the thing, they're about the next thing, the tease, the Easter egg, the post-credit sequence, the promise of a future at which the moment we're in can only hint at. I read that and I, I was like, man, someone's been listening to this show. <laughs> Not really, that wasn't really my response, but I was like, yes, this is exactly what I've been talking about. I, I think I talked about this in one of, one of the first episodes of the show, is that there is no movie being picked up in Hollywood right now that doesn't have the option to be franchisable, right? Doesn't have the, the ability to be turned into a cinematic universe, to use the, uh, the Marvel phrase. And that's kind of what this, this article talks about in detail is what is happening in the industry and why it's killing creativity. Because we're not, we're not concerned with anymore the thing. We're concerned with the next thing, which is what I just read to you. And I think that that's, that's so, it's so pervasive right now in film and it's it's like creeping over i feel like it's it's creeping over and it's only a matter of time before it starts manifesting itself in other mediums probably first television and then you know games and then maybe music i think is probably the last to get touched but um i think a great example of this uh that happened just this past week was that marvel released their teaser trailer for their Ant-Man movie and the teaser trailer was actually uh they called it ant-sized it was just a really small thing you couldn't even see what it was but they released it anyway it was just this really small picture and they're like ha 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 we're telling you that our teaser trailer is coming out on Tuesday well then they released a bigger thing before Tuesday they released a bigger thing that was a teaser for the teaser to the movie. Teaser for the teaser for the trailer of the movie. That's what it is. So it's like, we're, it's, I don't even understand what's happening right now. It's like, we're so 
it's not about the product anymore. It's about something else that doesn't actually exist. We're all getting hyped for uh, Ant-Man, but we're only seeing Ant-Man so that we can see the post credit sequence where we can see something about the next, you know, Iron Man movie or, or whatever. Why are we not focusing on the actual thing anymore? This is what I want to talk about is how can we as artists kind of take a step back from this machine that's driving this insanity and say, look, we as creators are going to make art that is the thing. I'm not going to make an album and, you know, as a, a well, I'm going to make this, but it's really about the next one. I'm not going to make a film that is leading up to the next film. I'm just going to focus on what I have in front of me and make that the best thing that I can be. I think that's what sets the indie world apart from the mainstream. At least, you know, one of the things, one of the main things that should set us apart is because we don't have a guaranteed anything, we just have to focus on what we're doing right now. We have to focus on the song that we're writing right now. The, the paragraph that we're writing right now is the only thing that exists. And if we can focus on that and make that the reality, I think that we can start creating art that matters. Something that, that is in retaliation to the mainstream that says the thing that you're in, the moment that you're in is not the moment that matters. It's the next moment. It's the tomorrow. It's the next year. It's the, the 2016. It's the 2017. It's the 2020, you know. What does that mean for you? What does that mean for you as an artist to look at your medium and say, I want to use this medium to capture this moment that I'm in right now. These feelings that I'm having, not to try and exploit something in the future to get the six picture contract or, you know, the five record contract or whatever it is. Being in the moment that will set you apart in a way so that where the the consumer of your thing right the consumer of your art the listener or the viewer or the reader they'll sit down and they'll take notice because nothing in the mainstream is like that it's all about something else uh i've talked about this before i think um Aziz Ansari has a, a bit in his stand-up where he talks about club songs. And he's like, man, club songs are just, they're just lies. Because nobody actually likes being at the club. It's a horrible experience. It's really loud and everybody's drunk and awful and it smells bad and it's hot. But the club songs, they're the bangers they're going on and, and they're telling you like, this is the best night of your life. And I've, I listened to that and I was like, man, it's so true. And it's strange because those songs are played on the radio and it's like, man, I really got to get to the club. And then the club is so awful, but the music is telling you that this is what it's all about is, you know, this <laughs> fake experience or whatever. And I think that that's what, that's like an equivalent, uh, because it's not taking the reality. It's not taking the moment that you're actually in, which is awful. 
It's like, hey, uh, maybe if you only did this thing, have one more drink or have, you know, uh, talk to this one other person or what, you know, whatever it is. It's not about the actual moment. So if you as an artist can capture the actual reality, people will be able to view that and say, man, I relate to that on such a deep level. I relate to this in ways that I don't relate to anything else because this is real and honest and, and vulnerable and, you know, everything that the mainstream is not. It's present. So that's the question I want to lead off 2015 with for you, for me, for all of us who are going to be creating things, uh, you know, art in 2015. How can we make the art that is in our minds that we've conceptualized that we're going to, to actually put out into the world this year? How can we make that present and, and something that is real and now and not something that is leading up to something else? or something that is uh, not actually a full product, but is, um, oh man, you think this is good, well wait till the next thing, you know? Because now is all we have, we don't have a guarantee for anything other than the thing that we're working on right now, right this minute. So I wanna hear from you guys, what are you guys gonna do in 2015? How Does, does this make any sense to you? I wanna hear from you, go ahead and tweet me at David Mantel. Or this might be a, a conversation that needs to be had in a longer format. So uh, shoot me an email at uh, brokenlightrecords at gmail.com. I want to have this conversation with you guys. I want to work together on making art that is real, making things that are about now, about the present, and uh, not about the teaser for the teaser for the teaser for the trailer for the movie. You know what I'm saying? I hope you do. I hope it makes sense. We got a good episode coming up. Good interview. Good talk with Jamin Warren uh, from Killscreen Media and Game Show on YouTube. Uh, before we get to that, I have one major announcement for you guys, listeners of the podcast. If this is your first time listening, uh, sorry, because this is going to be a little weird. If this is your, you know, whatever episode we're on, ninth time listening. This is for you, long-time listeners. There is going to be a Kickstarter next week for the Broken Light Show, and I'll tell you why. We're going to start a website for the show, which will allow people to uh, access the audio for the show without having to go through iTunes. I've gotten a lot of uh, feedback saying that that is something that needs to happen is that you know some people don't use iTunes or they don't have access to that so being able to access the show from directly from a website is something important so I want to be able to do that the website will set up um, some credibility so I'm not just pointing people you know when I ask for interviews with people I'm just pointing them to the the podcast page on iTunes which is fine uh, but setting up some credibility for future guests so I can get uh, you know more people involved and I think that'll be really good we'll have little bios for all the guests so you can see what they look like and find out all the stuff that they're involved in I think that'll be really cool there's gonna be a lot more stuff on the website itself so if you think that this uh, show is worth something anything 
you know, because right now I'm, I just give it out for free and I want to continue to do that. I want to continue to help foster these conversations. And so if this show has meant anything to you, it's not going to be a huge, I'm not asking for, you know, $20,000 or whatever. It's just a couple hundred bucks to get the website, get a logo and some other stuff um, put together for the show. So if you've been listening for a long time and, um, you know, maybe this show is worth something to you, um, I'll give you a chance to prove it next week. Um, yeah. We got Jamin coming up uh, right after this break. Stay tuned. It's a really great conversation. You won't want to miss it. Keep me there for a humble soul is teachable and moldable. And some good music. That's a band called Families. The record is called The Way We Should Have Been comes out this weekend January 10th you can pick it up at familiesband.com I helped make this record engineered it, mixed it, mastered it these guys played all the songs, really good friends of mine we've been working on it for a little bit and I'm really excited to share it with you guys so this weekend you can go and Head over to familiesband.com and pick up the record if you like folk singer-songwriter. This is the album for you. It's great. It's going to be one of the best albums of the year. I guarantee it. You won't regret it. So January 10th, go pick up The Way We Should Have Been at familiesband.com. The more that I've been watching your videos online, the more I'm like, yeah, you know what? I think games as an art form do need an advocate and I don't, uh, I don't know any. And so <laughs> I reached out and I was like, I, I like, uh, I like what you had to say. And so, um, I'm glad you could, uh, come on and talk about some of that stuff. Of course. No problem. Um, so before we get into that stuff, I would just like to talk about, um, your sort of background, um, cause it's, uh, you know, internet bios, are fascinating but also vague um you were a journalist uh at one point correct um, that is correct yeah I, was, I served as a as a journalist for the wall i was a wall street journalist in fact a wall street journalist and now you make videos on the internet and uh kind of oversee a website on games and pop culture uh that's correct although i guess it would be the other way around so um my full-time job is uh, running uh, Killscreen, which is a video game arts and culture company that I started, uh, I guess, about five years ago. And then uh, the PBS show I host called Game Show sits underneath um, it sits underneath that. The show is owned by PBS, but it's a contract with Killscreen. Got it. How does that, how does that jump happen for you? Uh, how did I make the jump in the games or the jump into journalism, I guess? Uh, either one. <laughs> <laughs> well, I didn't, um, you know, I didn't intend on becoming a journalist. I actually wanted to go into advertising um, right out of college. I, uh, right out of college, I, <laughs> it's actually a funny story. I, I was really interested in becoming what's called a brand planner or a brand strategist. And uh, I had initially, like after college, I had gotten an offer for a job to work with like a large uh, really big advertising agency uh, that was doing 
uh, doing a bunch of client work for a very large uh, restaurant chain. And I went in for this interview, and the guy was like, so are you ready to sell hamburgers to poor, underprivileged children? And I was like, ah, maybe this is like a little too advertising-y. It's like a little too <laughs> bad men for me. Um, so I... Uh, I did like a, a year kind of on the eastern shore of Maryland at this program for people who don't know what they want to do and it was around that time um, I started I started writing and initially it was writing about music. I was a critic for, for Pitchfork and some other small alt-weeklies uh, and then that uh, kind of prepped my resume for the Wall Street Journal who very fortuitously at the time was looking for uh, someone to cover music for them, amongst other things. Um, so from there, I kind of branched out. I became I was one of two entertainment reporters for the journal for their weekend section, the Friday and Saturday paper. Um, it was myself and this other guy, John Jurgensen, um, who's still there. And so from my you know my ambit kind of expanded. It wasn't just music. Then it became uh, you know it became more broadly construed culture. I was writing about uh, film and TV, and um, so games seemed like for me like a very natural complement to all the other culture reporting that I had done at the time. So I put together this proposal for my editor. I was like, look, I should really be covering games. Nobody at the paper is really covering it. Um, you know, we get, there's you know, Walt Mossberg, who was the big kind of tech reviewer at the time. Uh, but nobody was really looking at it from a news standpoint. The, you know, the video game uh, industry was covered by, I think, a single journalist in San Francisco um, who was covering, like, Apple and Netflix. So games, like, even though it was just already, you know, in the mid, -aught, the mid to late aughts, already, it was already this large commercial entity, uh, wasn't really getting the uh, kind of cultural cultural reporting that I thought that it needed. So I bring this, you know, this this three-page kind of argument complaint to my editor. And he <laughs> looks at me and he's like, yeah, I don't get this video game thing. And they just, like, moved me over the TV. And that was that. So but I felt like, you know, at that time I was starting to do uh, you know, a bunch of interviews with, with video game designers like Jenova Chen and uh, that game company and um, Hideo Kojima, who was doing Metal Gear Solid, and I was just finding that there was this incredible wealth and knowledge that was housed in the world of video games, but didn't really make its way into the wider world. These were these incredibly creative, dynamic individuals um, whose work generally generally speaking, was like outside of the world of games, which is a very large world, was not really being considered. So that was the nugget that inspired Killscreen. Um, and so from there, you know, I thought, oh, there's something here. There's something about looking at games from this interdisciplinary um, perspective. There's something about advocating a life well played. And so I started Killscreen. Um, you know, as I said, we describe ourselves as a video game arts and culture company. So we run a website. Uh, we produce a magazine. Uh, we do a lot of partnerships. We did the first ever arcade at the Museum of Modern Art. Um, we've done curatorial work for the New York Film Festival, the Impact Festival uh, in Utrecht in the Netherlands. We just finished up some work for Moog Fest, which is a big music festival in Asheville, North Carolina. Um, and then we have our own conference called 256, uh, which we've been doing for the last two years. We try to get one person from inside games and one person from outside games to talk about a set of common issues. So uh, last year we had Alexis Ohanian, who is the co-founder of Reddit. Uh, this guy Jake Barton, who did all the multimedia design for the 9-11 memorial. He was on stage with this game designer named Steve Gaynor, who created a game called Gone Home. So we're really about like trying to bring people together who wouldn't normally meet who wouldn't intersect. Uh, so that's Killscreen. Yeah, in, in a nutshell, I mean, it's a big 
we feel like it's a really big mission, you know. Um, we feel like there's a lot of space there to do some really cool and incredible things. So uh, it's been really it's been really exciting to do so far. Yeah. Was that something that you started doing um, while you were still working uh, for the Wall Street Journal, um, kind of doing it like as a side project, or did you just kind of dive headfirst and go all or nothing? Um, it was, you know, initially it was a side project. Um, I, you know, probably when I started Kill Screen, I wasn't thinking about it as a business because um, it was just the magazine, and there was this little website called Kickstarter that had just launched, and so yeah, we I were, heard of that. Yeah, yeah. So we were project like 497 or something like that wow. so we were, we were in the first three months uh much to my eternal chagrin i think if we had waited <laughs> a little bit longer we probably would have raised a lot more money but we raised like 3500 bucks uh which was a lot on kills uh, on uh, kickstarter at the time and uh yeah that was like a lot of money for for kickstarter and so i wasn't thinking about this as being like a business um around that time i was you know sort of thinking about leaving the the uh, the journal anyway I felt like you know there was room for me to grow um, as a writer so I was looking at like, looking into writing a book um, and then was kind of doing kill screen on the side and then kind of got to this place um, while I was freelancing I was like you know what I should really make a go at trying to turn this into an actual business and of course that was you know something I didn't really know how to do I'd never run a business before <laughs> yeah um, I you know I read some small business books and it's funny looking back like not really knowing like how do I structure this in a way that I can actually like support myself um, and even then that took time you know that was you know that wasn't really something until maybe three years ago two and a half three years ago I was really able to like jump in and full-time and collect the salary and things like that but the first two years was just kind of me figuring a lot of stuff out on my own um, so yeah I mean you know it, it did it did overlap a little bit and um, but uh, yeah, ever since like I would say since like 2009 was when I started working on it. 2011 was like when I started doing it full time. You talk um, pretty frequently uh, on the site and on a game show on YouTube um, about video games kind of being uh, an art form, but also being sort of this emerging esport thing. Um, but also, you know, we have the common perception of them being just kind of a leisure activity. Mm -hmm. Why do you think that games are kind of marginalized? Because you can talk about that all, all day long, you know, them being a sport or them being an art form or any of these things, but it seems like, to me, they're constantly just being pushed to the background. People don't really want to accept them as any of those things. They are just kind of like, yeah, but those are games. Because right. we all like playing games, right? So I don't understand why the, uh, why the hate. Right. Well, I, I think there are, there are a lot of different reasons. I, I would split them up into two categories: um, internal and external. Um, you know, I'd say in the internal side, in terms of things that games have done, um, I don't think that they've done a good job from a PR standpoint in terms of representing themselves as an art form. You often hear people talk about games as an industry, you know, um, and that's the language of commerce. It's not necessarily the language of art. Um, and so I think that you know, oftentimes the people who make games don't think of what they do as an art form, and as a result, you know, I think that a lot of times the things you know for you know for I would say for maybe for the last twenty years or so, um, probably longer, basically since the late '80s, uh, since like sort of the you know gross commercialization of games, um, people who make games don't necessarily think of themselves as artists; they think of themselves as 
you know, they think of themselves as businessmen or think of themselves as, you know, uh, you know, technical people. I mean, for me, this was reflected, you know, when I was at the Wall Street Journal, there's a really interesting distinction. The journal, and this is true of a lot of publications, did not italicize the names of video games the way that they would, um, like a book or a short story. Yeah. Um, but uh, so that would put you in the category of like Microsoft Windows or a Toyota Prius, right? So games were sort of, you know, sort of construed as this uh, this product, this saleable product. Um, but yeah, from a PR standpoint, I think that games have done a really poor job. I think in terms of marketing, um, marketing what people do as artistry, um, and then you know, obviously there's been, you know, there's been you know sort of scandals. Obviously, games have maybe not broached certain subjects like violence or gender or uh, or sexuality in ways that you know are reflective of people who are actually making you know, making it our form. So I, I think there's there's a bunch of internal reasons that games have been resistant to the idea that they are in our form. And then there's a, you know there's a lot of external pressures as well. The you know the effort I think you know a lot of larger artistic publications, whether they're literature reviews or um, literature reviews or national newspapers. I mean, right now, there's not a single national newspaper with the exception of the New York Times that has, um, like, a, a, a video game critic. You know, there's not, like, a, you know, an Ebert, so to speak, of video games the way that there is, and um, that's obviously a big problem. But I, I think the bigger, the bigger thing is that... Um, I think that there is, particularly for Americans, there's an anxiety about play and about how it fits into daily life, uh, and that we break our day up into two different pieces, into work and into leisure, and Americans feel very, very guilty about spending time doing things that are non-productive, which is what makes games games. They're in, they are a non-productive activity, and that's why we enjoy them, because they're explicitly not work. And I think with that comes a lot of, you know, a lot of baggage that people feel like the time spent playing playing games is not meaningful, is not worthwhile, because it's not, quote-unquote, producing anything of value. Um, and so I think that that undergirds a lot of the resistance to sort of accept games as, uh, you know, games as an art form. Um, and, you know, frankly, I, I think it's, you know, there it's there's a virtuous cycle where if people expect more from games, then game makers will produce better things. And I would say certainly from our perspective at Killscreen, I would say the last two years we've seen like an incredible explosion on both sides of the fence so in terms of big games and in terms of small ones, in terms of, I would say, the quality, the depth, the breadth, um, the, you know, sort of the, the variety of types of games that are being produced. And what's missing still is a much wider audience of people who can come to the table and purchase and experience those types of things. Um, so that's, I think that that's, right now, you know, I feel like there are enough, when people ask me, what should I play? I'm like, oh gosh, there's so much. <laughs> um, but I don't think necessarily cultured people um, out who haven't grown up on games or don't have an explicit attachment to the world of games go and actively seek games as a something that they want to do. They'll turn to TV or they'll turn to books or whatever it might be, but they don't turn to games yet, um, yet being the operative word there. Where do you think the, the future of that lies? Do you think that there's uh, some kind of big event that will like reconcile that, or is it a slow, gradual, uh, just kind of a chipping away at the preconceived notions yeah I think it'll be a slow and gradual thing I, you know I think part of what's hard is um, part of what's hard is like when you look at other mediums in terms of their like sort of ascent into the pantheon of the arts a lot of times there's a lot of confirmation bias and hindsight is 2020 and so we sort of look at let's say it's like Bonnie and Clyde the film Bonnie and Clyde um, which is sort of like a, a paragon of 
uh, you know, filmmaking in the last 40 years kind of ushered in the new Hollywood movement of the 60s and 70s. Like, you know, I, I think we certainly look at a film like that, or you look at you know a lot of things, the Criterion Collection releases, for example. We look at those films as saying, oh, of course, their greatness was recognized in their time, and that's not necessarily, that's not always the case. So sure. I think it's it's a slow and gradual, um, slow and gradual thing. I think the big jump-off point is is college for a lot of people, and that's where you sort of, uh, I think college is where you start to cultivate interests and tastes. You sort of. Um, your you know your sort of mind is expanded intellectually. You start to become a person more of your own right. I think as you have more students graduating from college who are not surprised by the idea that games have meaning, I think that that will only increase um, year over year, and hopefully will be reflected in you know the popularity of games. But I think it's going to be it's going to be a long slow road. It takes time, but that, that's a big reason why I started Kill Screen is like if we can serve as a as a beacon for people. Um, serve as a beacon for people as they, you know, are looking for new things, new meaningful experiences to play. Then I think that will, you know, yield dividends for us culturally and hopefully financially over time. <laughs> there you go. It's interesting. Uh, something I grabbed onto because uh, I'm I'm not a huge gamer by any means. I I just happened to this week pick up uh, Borderlands <clears throat> two, two Borderlands two. When I play that, I feel like. Um, like I, I have a, a fun time playing it, but I feel more like I'm, if I were to compare it to something, I'm like watching Die Hard, not Bonnie and Clyde or Citizen Kane. Right. You know what I'm saying? Um, so do you think that that kind of mirrors maybe, uh, to a greater extent in games, uh, something like, uh, going to see Transformers, you know, uh, in the theater, um, playing Call of Duty, uh, is there some kind of hierarchy that's there and is that based in uh, maybe the background, like you were saying, people who are making these products as products and not necessarily art, you know, when you compare it to something like Gone Home or even um, Mist, I think about Mist was like one of the first games I ever played. Yeah, yeah, no, it's a good question. I mean, I, I go and see every Fast and Furious movie when it comes out, <laughs> you know, and... Um, just like I play every you know every year, I'll sit down and play Call of Duty. So I think that there's room on either end of the spectrum. And I have a, like you know I think that um, um, I think that like Michael Bay is an incredibly self-aware director, and sure. I think he understands what it is that he's doing, and he's you know I, so I, I I have an appreciation I think for for spectacle. Um, I don't think that that's necessarily true of all of all critics, but I think that the important thing is as you pointed out, recognize is a range of experiences to be had that games a game is not a game is not a game you know just the fact that you're able to make that distinction I think is reflective of uh, like a more generalized cultural literacy because I don't know necessarily that maybe 20 years ago people would have been able to make that distinction you probably would have put mm. NIST in the same category as Half-Life and SimCity and just said oh those are all just video games right. I think that you're, that you're able to say like oh okay Gone Home is going to, a game like Gone Home is going to require a different type of, you know, sort of mental, cognitive work for me than a game like Borderlands that's not a value judgment. It's just those are different types of experiences. So, um, so to some extent, you know, maybe, you know, I think that that, that literacy already, already sort of exists. Um, even if you're not someone who plays a ton, I, you know, I think that that's totally fine. So you, you talked about uh, in one of your uh, latest um, videos on game show uh, you talked about well actually it's in a couple of videos you talked about steam uh, mm -hmm. and their new um, 
their curation uh i don't know what you would call it like a infrastructure i guess where um people are able to kind of share games with each other now um Mm -hmm. in a way that hasn't really been possible um on a, a large scale like that and uh that was something that um, I actually mentioned on the show not too long ago here um, because I think it's fascinating and, and with this kind of explosion of noise in a lot of art forms where there's just so much content being uh, created. When I saw um, this example from Steam on how to sort of break through that noise, I thought that was fascinating and, and just uh, a really great idea to be able to give that power over to um, peers or just to whoever, um, and let people decide, uh, you know, who to follow and who to let curate their stuff as a journalist. Where do you see that, um, kind of curation going? Is that helpful for like a a consumer, um, someone who maybe wants to care about, um, the art that they're consuming? Do you see that carrying into other art forms as well? Yeah, no, it's a great question. I mean, it's yeah. I guess you sort of have to. There's two different ways to look at it. I mean, first of all, this is unequivocally good for distributors, right? If you are, um, if you're a Netflix or a Steam or an Apple, you know, Apple iTunes Store or whatever, just having more things for people to purchase is just and the fact that there are no costs associated with distribution for that volume that's always always a good thing whether or not this is good for consumers I mean I you know I guess the other way to look at it is, is it good for game makers well you know it's great if you're on the you know part of the the one percent so to speak I recently read that you know one percent of all recorded artists are responsible for 77 percent like over 70 percent of gross revenue mm-hmm. um, so it's not distributed very evenly which is why Taylor Swift was had just had a number one hit and then replaced herself with another number one hit right so <laughs> like we do we are seeing this in these different ecosystems where we're creating like winner take all sort of solutions uh, winner take all kind of arrangements the same with the app store if you look at something like Five Nights at Freddy's or um, you know, Candy Crush Saga or whatever it might be, these things kind of like they sometimes come out of nowhere, sometimes they're associated with marketing spend. Um, I, I think that the role, I mean, for journalists, I mean, I guess there's two different ways to think about it. If you are a journalist or a critic and your job is to, um, or you think that you're, you're, the purpose of your job is to inform people that something exists, um, then, 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 you know, then that role, I think, is becoming less interesting, less useful over time. Uh, I do think that cultivating a particular point of view um, is incredibly useful for for consumers. So the idea that you're going to be able to become this like omnibus video game site, like an IGN that covers everything, I think that that is becoming more and more untenable. But I think that cultivating a particular point of view on games, like certain liking certain types of games, I think that that is just as needed as it's ever been, um, for the simple reason that most people don't have enough time to be able to make decisions and they need someone to help them. Um, and I think that, that that help can come from a variety of ways. It can come from friends. It can come from an algorithm. Um, it can come from some sort of like curatorial page. It can come from a particular you know a particular source of information. But um, you know, as games are getting to this place now where there's just so many things that are being produced, the need for help for people to try and sort through that madness I think is incredibly, incredibly valuable. Um, the hope is that 
this breadth will yield a generation of of, um, of game you know of game appreciators who have breadth. The worry is that people just end up kind of playing the same thing that they like over and over and over again. <laughs> yeah. And and no amount of variety is going to fix that. So, um, but yeah, I mean it's a it's a it's a really good thing. Um, but I think that uh you know obviously if you're a game maker becomes incredibly difficult to get your stuff to sound to, to stand out. It's you know as hard as it's ever been. Like the idea of having a Roger Ebert for video games is probably. I mean, there are a variety of reasons why I think that's not going to happen. One is simply time. Like, just games are way more time consuming than pretty much any other medium, with the exception of maybe books. Hmm. Um, but I mean, I think the other piece of it is is just. So, so there was a review. Manola Dargas, who's the, the the film critic at the time, she wrote a piece uh, maybe like a year or two ago, maybe like two years ago, after coming back from I think she was coming back from Sundance or something, and she was sort of like throwing out this art. She was throwing out this argument that there are too many films being made because um, the cost of creating film has, you know, particularly on the indie side, has dropped so much. Sure. Uh, it's so expensive, but it's never been easier to sort of like create something in the video format. And the same can be true of set of games. And I, I think that the idea that you have this one critic, like, and this is how it used to be, like with film, for example, that it's one critic that could basically watch most things that came out in a year. That world has essentially evaporated. So mm. I think what's more important is for critics to basically um, that people people are attracted to criticism. I think because it represents a particular point of view, and they like either the the tone and style of the person who's you know writing or reviewing or let's playing or whatever it might be, or they like um, the types of games that that person is uh, nailing down. So if you're just a board game person, it's going to be a lot easier for you to cover just the world of board games. Or if you're someone who just does, I don't know, deeply personal games or someone who only does big blockbuster stuff, that that world is going to be much easier for you to sort of like galvanize your your tribe to. Um, uh, yeah, so I, I mean, you know, I, the idea that I think we're going to have like this one singular voice that's going to point people towards certain games I think is probably... Unfortunately, probably gone forever. <laughs> Not just in games, but I would say in general. Thanks again to Jamin for coming on the show. It was a blast having you. Great conversation. I think uh, this is an important one to have. Great insights. You can check out more from Jamin. Uh, you can go to killscreendaily.com. Check out his website there. Or you can go to uh, PBS Game Show on YouTube. So youtube.com slash PBS Game Show. Just type in game show pbs in youtube you'll, you'll find it it's super easy those videos are really great good conversation um just like uh just like what you found here if you uh want to join in the conversation maybe you got some comments maybe you're a gamer maybe you uh have played a video game maybe you just want to jump in and and uh slam everything that we talked about in this week's episode hit me up on twitter at david mantel you can also email me at brokenlightrecords at gmail.com we've got a kickstarter coming up next week I'm really nervous I don't know what to expect but we're going to launch the website for the show so that more people can be involved in the conversation that's, that we're having you can share it with your friends who maybe aren't Mac users they don't use iTunes to listen to podcasts they use something else 
you'll be able to just access the audio of every episode on the website directly. There's going to be a lot more content. You'll be able to uh, get little bios of the guests that I interview. There's going to be a whole lot more stuff coming up, and we'll talk more about that next week on Wednesday when I launch the Kickstarter. I hope that, um, you know, I put I put a lot of time into this show. I think it's worth my time. I think it's worth your time. I think the conversations that we're having are important, and uh, I want to keep doing this. I want to do, I want to do f- 50 more episodes this year, and uh in order to do that, setting up a presence online, being able to have a professional website, professional logo, all of these things uh, are really important to get more people involved. So far, I've been really lucky um, and, and uh, fortunate with the guests that have come on the show to talk about all this stuff, um, and the conversations that we've had have been great, uh, and I can't imagine what more could happen um, with just a few little tweaks. So... If you listen to this show every week and you think that, uh, yeah, this show, the Broken Light Show, Dave, is worth supporting um, with just a couple of dollars, I will let you know how to do that next week. So Friday, if Friday's payday, you know, set a couple bucks aside, maybe a coffee or something um, for the week, and uh, you can help support the show that way. Thanks for putting up with me. I'll see you guys next week.